book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4. And if you need to use your table of contents to find that, no problem there. Now that can be a short, it's a short book, only two pages in my Bible, and uh, sometimes challenging to find. So Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4. We want to spend some time praying, seeking the Lord together. And as I lead us, you'd be praying as well where you are in your own heart, and your own mind, as we seek the Lord together. So let's pray together. Father, even as we have sung already today, you are worthy, worthy of all praise, worthy of all exaltation, worthy of all honor and glory, power and strength, might, because you are the God who was, you are the God who is, and you are the God who is to come. Sovereign King over the universe, worthy of all of our worship. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who sent your only Son to die on the cross for our sins in our place, rising again on the third day, so that all who trust in him would have eternal life. And so, Lord, we thank you for these truths of who you are and for this time every week where we gather together to remind ourselves once again who is worthy of our devotion. Lord, we praise you. And Lord, we thank you that you are the God who forgives sin. You are the God who cleanses us from our unrighteousness. And we don't come together today because we are perfect people. By no means are we perfect. We all know that. But Lord, we come before you today because we are sinners in need of grace and you are the God of amazing grace. And so Lord, we come before you and we confess our sins to you. We recognize that in this last week, Lord, we have been prideful. There may have been times in this last week where we have engaged in gossip. Where we've engaged in unbelief or lack of faith. But where we have responded to others in anger, unrighteous anger. There may have been times this week when we were focusing and trusting in ourselves and what we can get and what we want and our own desires rather than resting in you. Lord, there's many ways in which we sin, but Lord, I know that for every sin that we have, there is a measure of grace, if in fact limitless, aboundless grace, because if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we confess and we receive your mercy and your grace, and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your amazing love and amazing grace by which we could only stand before you because of your forgiving love. And Lord, I pray for this morning that your spirit would be upon us speak to us and lord i pray this week that you would empower us to live lives in such a way that bring glory and honor to jesus that fight more against sin and bring the good news of the message of the cross and the resurrection to the world that needs it and so lord i pray you're filling you'd fill us with your holy spirit help us to hear from your word today lord we thank you and praise you for it in jesus name we pray amen jonah 
chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. Now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted. And he wanted to die, and he said, It's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us now from your truth. Help me to preach faithfully today. Help us to listen to what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live today in a culture that is increasingly angry. We live in a world that is increasingly angry where outrage has become fashionable on in just about every sector of society and outrage has become fashionable on social media as people boil over at those who have differing views from their own moreover they even boil over at people who should be on their team that are not expressing enough outrage about the very things in which they are outraged about <laughs> How dare you not have as much outrage as I do? You must not be faithful to the cause. Anger is evident in so many different ways. You can't even hardly turn on the nightly news and see that there has been another road rage incident where somebody has lost their lives with somebody raging because they got cut off in traffic even i've seen it in the last year as i've been driving down the road and i see somebody in the car next to me and they are obviously mad because i see them yelling i see them pounding the steering wheel they are yelling through the window as if the person in the other car they're yelling i could hear them through the window but they are, don't care about that they are going to yell through the window and hopefully express their anger and vitriol at whoever it is that they are angry at <laughs> that's the world we live in I've been at the 
grocery store and witnessed people screaming at the cashier. I've seen it at restaurants of people yelling at the restaurant workers. Even one time I was at a baseball game, at my son's baseball game, and I, and I saw somebody angry causing the teacher there behind the gate to cry because they were angry over, I think it was mass or something like that. I don't really know what it was. And maybe they didn't even realize what it was, but they were angry. And they were expressing their rage. Now, indeed, there's something that is called righteous anger. There is something called righteous anger because we know that there are times in the Bible when Jesus got angry. We know that he was angry at the temple when he kicked over the tables and, the, and kicked out the money changers out of the temple. We know that, that there is such a thing as righteous anger. Now, what is righteous anger? Righteous anger is anger that is motivated by the kingdom of God and the expansion of the rule and reign of God in our hearts, in our lives, in, in the world. And when we encounter evil, whether it be pride, whether it be racism, whether it be abuse, whether it be pornography, whether it be sex trafficking, whether it be gossip, or whether it be the sin that so easily entangles us, when we see that in our lives, our, 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 our heart should be a welling of how dare the world do this affront against the holiness and the character of Almighty God. And so there should be an appropriate level of anger that wells up within us and drives us to the pursuit of holiness, to pursuing, pursuing Jesus in our lives, practicing the spiritual disciplines, sharing the gospel with other people, and making disciples. That is righteous anger that drives us to a greater pursuit of holiness and a greater war against sin and against the principalities and powers. However, most of the time in our lives, I would guess that most of our anger is not really righteous anger. I would guess that much of the time in our lives, most of the anger expressed in our souls and in our families and in our cars and in our workplace and on social media the most of the anger that we express is of the unrighteous variety. In fact, we may even call it unrighteous indignation. It's an indignation. It's an anger that is motivated by something in our souls, something in our souls that Jonah 4 brings to the forefront and God just exposes our hearts here in Jonah 4. This type of unrighteous anger is motivated by idols of the heart. Now, what is indignation? Indignation is a noun. It simply means anger or annoyance that is provoked by what is perceived as unfair treatment. I am being unfairly treated. This is an injustice. And how dare you do that to me? That is the expression that is motivated at our cores by idols in Unrighteous anger is anger or annoyance that is provoked by what is perceived as a threat to what is most important to us. And what is most important to us, if it is not Christ and his kingdom expanding its rule in our souls, what is most important to us is an idol. And what Jonah 4 does is in the heart of Jonah, God is performing heart surgery. 
God is opening up his soul, exposing within Jonah's soul the idols of the heart, the very things that have gotten in the way of his worship of God and his plan and his ways in the world, and rather inserted Jonah's plan, Jonah's heart, Jonah's values, Jonah's self-centeredness at the core of his being. And God just opens him up and exposes this because of his love and because of his grace for Jonah. And because of his love and his grace for us. So here in this passage, I want you to see four ways in which we need to, or three ways in which we need to root out the idols of our hearts. First way is this, number one, what we see in this passage. Number one, root out the idols of the heart. They hinder your relationship with God. Root out the idols of your heart. Why? Why Why should you care? Why should you do this? Is because there's a hindrance that happens in your relationship with God when we are worshiping something, when something in our heart has a higher value than Christ in our lives. Many people think that Jonah ends at the end of chapter 3. Similarly, like they think that the prodigal son's story ends with the prodigal son coming home and the father embracing the, the prodigal son return home. We know Jonah doesn't end in chapter. Some people think that Jonah is all about prophet being called by God to go preach to Nineveh. He goes the other way. Eventually, he's eaten, gobbled up by a big fish, and then the fish spits him out on the land. He goes and preaches to the Ninevites. The Ninevites say, yes, we repent. And Jonah says, yeah, all right. And the end of story. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) But then we have this weird thing in chapter 4 where after preaching his five-word sermon to the Ninevites. Everybody responds to his message. The whole town, all 600,000 people, are responding to the message of Jonah. They're all repentant. They're all sorry for their sins. I can't believe what we have done to us. We are so sorry for how we have treated you, our great God. There is this great sorrow over their sin. They're all repenting in sackcloth. They're all repenting. They even put, they even put sackcloth on their cows. <laughs> and they repent <laughs> of their sin. Jonah is at this moment the greatest evangelist in history. I mean, the whole town twice the size of the Tritons repents of their sin. And then what happens? I mean, this should be Facebook material. Look what happened. A great revival happening in Nineveh. Come check it out. <laughs> And yet what we find here is Jonah is angry that his sermon was so successful. <laughs> I've never been there. <laughs> I mean, that's like if you were a painter and, you're, and, you're, and you're, your painting was accepted by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You're like, I can't believe, why did they put it there? <laughs> Or you're like a, like a band that plays your best number and then the whole crowd is a standing ovation like, be quiet. <laughs> Leave me alone. Or like a, like a baseball player hitting a, hitting a home run in the bottom of the night, walk off, and, and you get back to home plate and all, everybody is there to greet you there at home plate. The dugout is empty and you're all mad about it. What are you doing here? Get away. <laughs> it, it's, it's like, what is, Jonah, what, what are you doing? Jonah finds that the time fuse on his prophetic bomb doesn't work. He throws it out there, lights the fuse, 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown, and then it goes out. They repent. Why 
is this happening? In fact, verse 1 says in the original language, it says, it was, a, it was evil to Jonah with a great evil. They repented, God relented, and to Jonah, it was evil to Jonah with a great evil. In fact, the very evil that he said, that God says, is lurking in the hearts of the Assyrians, is now found in the heart of his prophets. It's found, same word, it's found in the heart of Jonah. And Jonah at this moment appoints himself as the theological advisor to the Almighty. God, you got it wrong. You ever been there? You ever thought that? You had expectations of how life was going to turn out. This is the way life should be. This is my plan. This is how I've drawn it out. This is how I think it all should be. And it goes a different way. And you're mad at God and you think, God, you must have got it wrong. I cannot believe how this is turning out. And Jonah responds to this situation by praying one of the very most, by, by praying one of the most self-centered prayers in the entire Bible. In fact, he prays in Jonah's prayer in verses two through three, or in verses two and three, and then in verse four, the word I or me occurs nine times. <laughs> Me, my, me, me, my, my, my. In fact, Jonah might as well be singing a Toby Keith song at this point. It's all about me. It's all about my. It's all about number one. Oh, my, me, my. It's um, (laughs) me, 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 me. (laughs) It's all about me. (laughs) How dare you get in the way of, of me? That sounds strangely familiar. Rather than stand up and judge Jonah, what Jonah does is Jonah holds up a big old mirror in front of our face and says, yeah, it's you. It's the idols in our heart that cause us to be self-centered to the point that it hinders our relationship with God. How much is Jonah's relationship with God is hindered? He, He actually takes one of the most central confessions of the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 35 and turns it as an accusation against God. So the most glorious truth about God is God is gracious, God is loving, God is compassionate. God is all of these wonderful things and long-suffering. And Jonah says, I knew it. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. And the very most precious things about God, Jonah in his soul turns it against God and he says, I knew you were these things. He uses it as a weapon to defend the idols of his heart, the very glorious truth about the grace of God. He turns it into an idol because he didn't get what he wanted. He turns them into weapons to defend his idols. God, I knew you were gracious. What does gracious mean? Gracious means it's the Lord's undeserved favor to rebels. We've sung about it already. This is amazing grace. Why is it so amazing? It's because, man, we were all sinners. And yet God pursued us, Jesus pursued us and forgave us all of our unrighteousness. That's his amazing grace. We didn't deserve it, but he gives it. It says, I, I knew you were compassionate. What does compassion mean? Compassion, it means loving and merciful. The, the word pictured there in the, in the Hebrew is like a mother taking a child and that's crying and needing help and bringing her up into his, her, her lap. That is the compassion of our God. That's our, that's our God who loves us. That I knew you were slow to anger. And God has a really long fuse. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And then, I knew you were abounding in steadfast love. That word in the original language is the word chesed. I would say it like that, and, but don't spit on anybody, right, because of virus. But chesed. <laughs> chesed is the word. 
And it's a hard word to translate into, the origin, into, into English. It's literally the word love and kindness and grace and mercy and all the best things about God rolled into, maybe not the best things, but glorious truths about God all rolled into one word. Like sometimes in, the, in, in English, we just translate it loving kindness. I know you are loving. I know you are kind, God. It's better than life. Never-ending, unfailing love. And the very truth that should have brought joy to Jonah's heart made him angry. That's what happens. When we hold idols of our hearts, anything in our souls that comes in front of God in our worship, in our priority list, it can cause the very truths about God to become things that we're mad at or don't care about or mean nothing to us. Jonah drops over. So what's, why, why does Jonah get to this? But he drops a huge hint in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 8, look at that verse with me. Chapter 2, verse 8, Jonah drops a huge hint about the idols of his heart in the middle of his prayer. Chapter 2, verse 8, he's still in the fish, he's praying, and he says this, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Hesed. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. And at this moment, Jonah is saying that, but he doesn't realize he still has an idol. Idols, actually, lurking in his heart. Now, what is an idol of the heart? A few weeks ago, we got this definition from Tim Keller in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods. He says the following. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. When you say, God, I won't serve you if you don't do X, or God, I won't serve you if you don't give me X. Then now, X is your bottom line. X is what you love. In fact, it's your highest love. And X is your idol. X is your God. When we put conditions on our love for God, conditions on our service of God, that condition, whatever it is, and the attainment of that and the achievement of that, is now the highest priority in our lives. How does this expose our unrighteous anger? What happens when somebody messes with the idols in our hearts? We are, somebody is messing, that with, uh, messing with that which is most precious to us. And so we bring them into the court of our own judgment and we pronounce them guilty in an instant. And then we respond with rage and wrath against that one we think is messing with our God. How dare you! Mess with what is most important in my life. That I will be willing to do anything. In fact, even respond in anger if you mess with it. And that's what's happening here in Jonah. He's expressing his highest value and his idol at that moment. What was his idol? What is getting in the way between him and his relationship with God? There are actually several. 
in Jonah? What are the idols of Jonah's heart? Jonah, here in this passage, in this book, appears to value self-identity, especially in terms of his race and his narrow-minded nationalism more than God. He is valuing. We know that because in chapter 1, when they ask him, who are you? He defines himself first and foremost in terms of, I'm a Hebrew. Most important thing about him. And we live in a culture today that's kind of doing the same thing, right? That is elevating some other aspect of our being to the highest place, of the highest value in our lives. And the importance hierarchy in our souls. Any wonder we have so much rage expressed about race in our society when it becomes the most important thing about us. Same thing can be true of sexuality. Important, yes, but when an idol in our lives, I will do anything to defend this, then it becomes something of our heart's worship. Not only is Jonah worshiping his self-identity, his own self-definition of himself, who I say I am, rather than who God says that I am, and how we are in relationship to him. That's why we sang this morning, good, good father, it's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you, it's who I am, who you say that I am, not who I say that I am. Big difference. What else is what is else's Jonah's idols of his heart? He also has this idol of fame and reputation. He wants people to like him. How do I know that? Well, because there's a contemporary of Jonah. His name is Hosea. And Hosea is prophesying at the same time that Assyria is going to one day destroy Israel. And it happens. Northern Kingdom is destroyed by Assyria not long after this, within a century. And so Hosea is prophesying that Assyria is going to destroy Israel. And so if Jonah comes in, drops the prophetic bomb there in Assyria, God comes and judges the Assyrians just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. How are people going to respond to Jonah when he gets home? <laughs> oh, we love you, Jonah. Throw him a ticker tape parade. It's awesome. And now God has come in and ruined all of his dreams of becoming the national hero. How dare you? How dare you forgive these people? I love what Paul Tripp says about idols. He says the following, sinful and anger. He says, sinful, destructive anger is rooted in idolatry. When my heart is controlled by something in creation, instead of the creator, I will rage against any person or any obstacle in the way of what I want. This desire for things in our creation, acceptance, position, power, success, and possessions. When these things grip our heart, anger and conflict will always result. We don't need so much anger management as we need worship realignment. Hard part, the hard truth, the hard reality in our soul is not that we need some tools to help us deal with our anger. Our anger is revealing something deeper in our souls that we are valuing something in our lives more important than the expansion of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God in our souls. Now, what does this like look like today? 
Anger begins, by a, begins with a list of what we worship, what we think we deserve. Some of them can be good things and good desires, but when they are elevated to ultimate things and ultimate desires, how dare you get in the way of what I want? What are these idols of today? It could be the idol of control. I've made my schedule. I've made my plan for today. This is how I want today to work out. And when we elevate ourselves above and our own plan, our own control, and you mess with it, boom, anger. It could be the idol of appreciation. Appreciation's a good thing. We should be appreciating one another. But when it becomes the ultimate thing and you don't get enough of it, rage. So oftentimes. It could be the idol of entitlement. I deserve. I deserve. I deserve. Me. 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 I deserve. I deserve kids who always meet my expectations and do well in school. Doesn't happen. Boom. I deserve a spouse who always does X or keeps the house clean, whatever. I don't get it. Boom. I deserve to win the game. Don't get it? I've seen this happen. I've, I've coached T-ball before. <laughs> and I've watched kids not win the game. What? I can't believe that umpire made that call. No, we lost 20 to 2. Um, <laughs> let's go get ice cream. And then all of a sudden, Dairy Queen solves everything, right? Okay. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. I've seen it in, you know, I've seen it in, in five-year-olds, but I've seen it in 18-year-olds. And I've seen it in 25-year-olds. Anger. I deserve a satisfying job. Anyone I saw in the news last night, like 45, 50% of people are, are going to quit their job in the next year. <laughs> Anger. How dare you treat me this way? I deserve money. I deserve people's respect. I deserve a new car. I deserve a house. I deserve a TV. I deserve a new game console. I deserve not to have to drive slow behind the idiot in the left lane. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> I understand that one. <laughs> but I've also responded in unrighteous anger sometimes when they're making me late. Why do I blame them? I'm the one who left late. <laughs> but it's always somebody else's fault when we have an idol in our heart. Don't give me what I deserve. I think I deserve. You're messing with my worship, the person in the mirror. I bring you to my own judgment. And then the I bring down the hammer. You're guilty. And then I pour out my own wrath on you. That's anger. That's what Jonah's getting at. People rage about all kinds of things today on social media. They're raging about race. They're raging about nationalism. They're race, raging about sexuality. All of these things. Are they ultimate things? Is there something that should be more ultimate in our souls, in our lives? How does God respond? I love how God responds to Jonah. How does God respond to Jonah in this moment? He, he asked him a question with gentleness and bringing his prophet along. He doesn't just bring the hammer down on him. He, he asked Jonah... Do you do well to be angry? And I think God would ask us the same question in our own dealing with our own idols in our own hearts. Do you do well to be angry? 
It's self-examination. It's looking in our own souls. It's looking to see who is really Lord of our lives, who is really God over our lives. How do we respond to this? We identify it. We confess it to God. We get accountability. We pray it out. We root it out of our lives. This brings us to number two. Not only does does our idols of our heart express itself in anger that hinders our relationship with God, but number two, root out the idols of your heart. They lead to destructive self-centeredness. We see that in the rest of, in, in the second part of the story about the plant here in, in Jonah 4. Jonah goes out to a hill overlooking Nineveh. Maybe he's out there because he thinks God's going to change his mind based upon his apparently superior theology that he has at this particular moment. Now he has advised God. Now he's going to go on the hill and watch and see what happens here in this particular moment. But he's still relying on this relentless kingdom of self to give him his joy in life. He goes out in the countryside and he builds himself a tent. Important word in the Old Testament. He builds himself a tent. The word there in the original language is the word booth or tabernacle. Now the Israelites were very good at building booths. They were good at building tabernacles. They were good at building these tents because they've been at a feast of tabernacles where every year they go outside of the house and, have, and build a tent and build a booth, and build something that, why, what were they doing when they build booths in Israel? What they were doing is a fall festival that is supposed to celebrate, one, the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God at delivering them from the Egyptians. And they were supposed to build these booths to remember every year and every harvest how God provides for our needs. So here is Jonah building a booth and supposed to be thinking about God and his grace and his mercy with this structure, and he cannot even see that very thing. And then right in front of him appears one of this incredible kindness of God. He's out there in the desert, and God causes a plant to give him some shade to grow up over him. And in fact, verse 6, after the plant comes, miracle of God, it says, Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great rejoicing. Huh? He's happy. When good things happen, when things happen that fit in his plan, and when things happen that, fo that fit in with his own self-centered world. Isn't that true of us too? And we love when things fit into our own self-centered picture of the way things ought to be. But it doesn't stop there. God is after his heart, and so he points two other lessons for Jonah. He says, he, it points, God appoints a worm that eats the plant, and God appoints what's called a Sirocco, which is a hot desert wind that in that area could cause temperatures in the desert to expand or go up to about 118 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> Sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> and here is Jonah self-centeredness exposed. I loved it when the plant was there. Now, angry. God asks him, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And you cannot translate into nice English what Jonah says next. Jonah actually swears. In Hebrew, he is swearing at God. He uses this cuss word. In fact, he says, yes, I'm blank right to be angry. Angry enough to die self-centeredness. Tim Keller says the following about self-centeredness. He says, as long as there is something more important than God in your heart, to your heart, you will be like Jonah, both fragile, fragile and self-righteous. Whatever it is, it will create pride and an inclination to look down upon those who do not have it. It will also create fear and insecurity 
It is the basis for your unhappiness. And if anything threatens it, you will be overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, and despair. Idols of the heart lead to self-centeredness. Our self-centeredness is is an indication of a worship problem in our soul. How do we work on this? Well, it's simple. You're not the center of the universe. Jesus at the center of it all. How do you work on this? It's a worship problem. You work on getting Christ and His Word and His will and His ways and His priority and His plans and His loves and His delights and His truth and His sin-freeing Word and grace at the center of your soul. And when you drive the truth deeper into your heart, what it does is it drives out the self-centeredness. It drives out the idols in our hearts and frees us to be people of worship that reflect the love, hesed, the character, the kindness, the long-suffering of God to the people around us in our lives. The very thing that is the opposite of anger is the very things that are descriptive about God. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's life with Jesus at the center, reflecting our God as King. Finally, number three, why else root out idols of our heart? Root out idols of our heart. Not only they, relate, they hinder your relationship with God, they cause you to be self-centered or reveal self-centeredness in your life. And number three, root out idols of the heart because they cut off love for the lost for whom Christ died. Idols of the heart cut off love for the lost. Isn't that what happened to Jonah? That's the point of God's speech there at the very end. God gets the last words in Jonah. He said, look, Jonah, you ultimately care about the plant. Why? Because it served you and your interests. Jonah, if if you just look out of your booth and look past the plant, look into the city and see there's 120,000 people who do not know their right from their left. What kind of people don't know their right from their left? Who do you have to teach that to? Children. Archaeology says there's 600,000 people in Nineveh at that time. 120,000 of them are kids. Jonah, you look down the hill and you want them to be judged. It's the reign of self-centeredness. Not only that, they're imaging also this not knowing the right from their left. There are people who don't know what they are doing. There are people that need to be taught about God. They need to be taught about His grace. They need to be taught about His plan. They need to be taught about His will. Don't you care, Jonah? Don't you care for them? Don't you, don't you care for them? What about the cows? It ends with cows. The very last word in the book of Jonah is cattle. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> don't you even care about the animals that you should see down there and are covered in sackcloth, Jonah? Jonah likes God's compassion when it's shown to him and angers him when God's compassion is shown to others who do not meet his expectations, who do not meet his image of what nice, respectable church people ought to be like. And when he, when God changes things, when God is ministering grace and compassion and forgiveness, it angers him. What does Jonah teach us? Jonah teaches us to keep the Lord Jesus Christ as our highest value How does this book point to Jesus? This book points to Jesus because it shows us how this mystery happens. How can the love of God and the justice of God come together? 
How can God forgive the Ninevites, but also judge their sin? How can this happen? Look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It'll be on the screen. It says this. Jonah quotes part of it, but he doesn't finish it. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. He quotes all of that. But he will not leave but. He will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Jonah is struggling with this question. How, God, can you love these people and forgive them and be just at the same time and just pass over their sin? And we know the whole book of Jonah is meant to point us to the answer to the question. How does the love of God for sinners and the need for God to be just and punish sin. How in the world can those two things come together? And we know the only place, the only answer, is in the cross of Christ. Because in the cross, Jesus dealt with our sin. Sin was punished, and the love of God was poured out. Jesus didn't run away and from our need of grace like Jonah need, did. Jesus ran to us in our greatest need. Jesus runs after the prodigal son Jonah and he runs after the prodigal son you see in the mirror, prodigal child you see in the mirror every single day and he welcomes us with open arms and he not only goes after the prodigal but he goes after the older brother as well in Jonah like we tend to be a lot of the time. Jesus comes after us. Jonah is outside of the city judging the city. Jesus goes outside of the city and he weeps over the city. Jonah goes outside of the city wishing it would be destroyed. Jesus goes outside of the city to die on a cross for its salvation. That is our Savior. And just like Jonah predicts, Jesus would be in the grave for three days and three nights. And on the third day, he would rise again from the grave to set us free from our self-centered, idolatrous way so that we would be free to love and serve God and to love people with all that we've got, with beyond what we've got, with the love of God flowing within our hearts and souls from within us as he sets us free from the idols of self to worship the one true and living God. Book of Jonah ends very abruptly. Shouldn't I care about all the people in the cattle? Drop the mic. <laughs> what happened? Why, is it his end? Why does it end so abruptly? I think here's what's happening. Jonah, the book of Jonah, is God doing heart surgery on his prophet, on Jonah exposing the idols of his heart. And if you were to watch it in movie form, it might look something like this. Jonah is there on the, on the table, on the operating table, and God is there just doing incredible surgery, incredible work, and you're watching him do just, he's the miraculous best heart surgeon in the world. He's working on Jonah, and then at the very end, the picture fades out. Jonah disappears, and you look back on the table, and you're on the table. The book of Jonah is not ultimately about Jonah needs to deal with this. The book of Jonah is about you and I need to deal with this because we have idols in our hearts that we are willing to defend to the point 
that it will hinder our relationship with God, cause us to be self-centered, and hinder our love for the lost. Will you allow God to do this glorious, careful heart surgery that roots out the idols of self and allows Jesus to have first place in our lives? Let's take a moment of silence and ponder that question, and then let's respond. Father, as we come to the end of this book, Lord, we recognize that it's a bit about Jonah, but the Word of God is a mirror. And Lord, we see ourselves right here, and we see our own need for grace. We see our own need for transformation. Lord, we see our own need for doing this hard work, hard heart work, where we, by your Holy Spirit's empowerment, we see the things in our lives that have crept up and become ultimate things in our souls that we put way too much value on, more value than we place on you, and they become idols. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal those in our souls. And Lord, I pray that we would cast down our idols. Reveal these things to our souls and set us free from them so that we would be free to worship you, having Jesus at the center of our hearts and our lives, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And so, Lord, I pray for this time of response. You would help us to do that hard work in the days ahead. Lord, I pray that you would continue to reveal the things in our lives that have gotten out of whack in terms of the most important things about us and truths about us. And, Lord, I pray that during this time of response, you would help us to do business with you. Lord, we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.